podcast tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to Indubitably now. Extra, extra, read all about it. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Indubitably. If my voice sounds a little bit different, that's because it is. Today, I'm taking over hosting duties from Josh and Kelly. My name is Stevie Ray Page, and I am so excited to be here. A little bit about me before we get started. I'm a musician, avid reader, and political scientist who works in the music industry and loves to debate. I've debated competitively for going on eight years, but most importantly, I just love to battle. And speaking of battle, we have something really special for you all today. I'm going to be moderating a live debate where Josh and Kelly will be battling against each other, each joined by a teammate to help their side emerge victorious. The topic we will be debating on today is eating meat is unethical. Before we get started, I'll give you a brief overview of how our debate will be formatted. In the first half, we will start with one speaker from each side presenting their case in a six minute speech, followed by a period of cross-examination where they will question each other directly. Then the second speaker for each side will repeat the process. During these speeches, you will hear interjections from the opposite side called points of information. This is an opportunity to ask the speaker questions or challenge them on statements as they are being made. Depending on the topic today will be your regular co-host Kelly, who you all know and love, and she will be joined by her teammate, Emily Baker. Emily is a post-humanist transgender lesbian communist. She did policy debate in high school before moving over to British parliamentary debate in college. She became a vegetarian for ethical reasons after reading the essay, All Animals Are Equal by Peter Singer. She has imperfectly followed a vegetarian diet for 11 years and a vegan diet for two of those years. Emily, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. It's exciting to be here. I, I don't get to soapbox about this topic very much despite the stereotype about preachy vegans, uh, in my experience, meat eaters are a lot more obnoxious about their preferences. We are so happy to have you join us today. And then on the opposite side will be Josh alongside Gabe Rusk. Gabe is currently the director of debate at Fairmont Private Schools in Southern California. In high school, he won the National Debate Tournament of Champions and continued on debating in college and grad school. Some debate accolades include fourth speaker at USVP Nationals and best floor speech at the Oxford Union. Gabe received his degree with honors from the University of Denver in philosophy and religion and went on to receive his master's from the University of Oxford in religious studies with an emphasis on the history of religion and law in the United States. While at Oxford, he was the LGBTQIA officer at the Oxford Debate Union and graduate international officer for the Oxford Students' Union. In his spare time, Gabe is an excellent cook and baker, celebrating his 12th year as a pescatarian, a tea aficionado, and is also a longtime practicing Shin Buddhist. Gabe, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to engage this conversation with you all today. And without any further ado, I'd like to call on our first speaker, Emily, to open up this debate for us. I thought about starting this speech with examples of torture of animals and industrial factory farming, things like gestation crates or deep-beaking chickens, uh, branding cattle, preventative antibiotics, cramped quarters. But the thing is, you already know about all of those things. You've heard about all of them at some point or another in your life, and you just decided you didn't care enough. Uh, You decided it was more important to eat meat and to enjoy your culinary pleasure than to consider those things. I'm here today to ask you to reconsider that stance um, and to take into account the stories of torture that you heard and the routine cruelty that goes into animal husbandry and modern industrial factory farming. Uh, And the basis that I want to do that on is a little bit of a philosophical one, but I think it's very powerful. And that is um, an ethics of care, which is more or less encapsulated in that classic tweet, I don't know how to convince you you should care about other people. Um, but we want to think about why we exclude animals from that proposition. Um, and we might have a good reason to. Uh, we might say, for example, um, that animals aren't intelligent uh, or animals don't have our same genetics. Um, but consider that when we apply that rule to humans, we carve out very specific exemptions in very specific circumstances, things like self-defense or uh, wartime, uh, punishing criminals, 
We could agree or disagree about any of those particular exemptions, but we consider the ethics of care to be universal, and we only carve out exemptions when we have a compelling reason to. Uh, so I want to take some of those objections in turn and, and see why they really don't hold water. Um, intelligence and speech. Well, um, you might first say that there are plenty of humans who aren't intelligent, who can't speak. People with fetal alcohol syndrome, with anencephaly, who are technically human but can't interact with the world in the way most other humans do. Um, and we don't consider them to be somehow exempt from the rules that govern cruelty towards humans in general. Um, like you could imagine a race of sentient squid people who kill humans for fun. And if you ask them why, they might say, well, you can't see an ultraviolet. Uh, so you're not people. Uh, well, yeah, we don't possess that capacity, but in what sense is that capacity relevant to our ability to feel pleasure or for, to, to our ability to, to deserve treat, good treatment? Um, and, and that's the question that we want to pose. Um, is our moral criteria relevant to our capacity to deserve good treatment from others? Uh, genetics is particularly fraught uh, because that argument was used to justify scientific racism. And if you say, you know, humans aren't relevantly are relevantly different enough from great apes, why can't you say humans aren't relevantly different enough from Scandinavia as they are from sub-Saharan Africa and use that to justify scientific racism? We don't think that that is an immediate risk, but we think that philosophically speaking, there's a very obvious lack of clear differentiation there. Um, why is our genetic code more relevant to our ability to deserve good moral treatment uh, than uh, any other criteria, than our ability to speak, than our ability to see an ultraviolet? We, we just think that argument ends up seeming pretty shallow. Uh, at this point, I, I'll take a POI from Josh if you still have one. Right. So I'm curious off the bat, do you think on your side that it is possible to kill and eat an animal humanely? Uh, it may be. I'll get to that later in my speech, actually. Um, but uh, in my, when I talk about the implications of this view for practical reasons, um, but we think the most compelling justification is consideration of whether or not a creature can feel pleasure in pain. And the reason why we think that is because it tracks, it, it's morally relevant or it's practically relevant to the argument from compassion or the ethics of care, because your ability to feel pleasure and pain determines whether or not I can treat you well or poorly. If I, if I hurt you, I'm treating you poorly. If I help you, I'm treating you well. Um, and furthermore, it's consistent with what we know about evolution. We know that creatures that are evolved to navigate the world and to develop plans and to try to achieve those plans need to have some feedback mechanism for whether or not they're doing things that might potentially harm them or help them. And that feedback mechanism is receiving pleasure and pain. So um, it means that there's no clear differentiation between humans who have certain capabilities and, you know, uh, crows who are smart, but don't have some capabilities humans do, or squid who are smart, but don't have some capabilities humans do. Uh, it entails an ethics of respect for all life, but respect that's appropriate to the nature of that life. Um, you can't be considered to be torturing someone by stabbing them in the leg if they have a fake leg. Um, just, just the same way, you can't torture a cow via, um, you know, reading them Vogon poetry because they don't understand poetry, but you can torture them by is sticking them with an electric cattle prod. So as for the practical implications of this, the obvious objection is the one that Josh raised. It's possible to humanely raise animals for, for consumption uh, as meat. But the thing is, it's not possible to do that at scale. Industrial factory farming is essentially dependent on wide-scale cruelty, cramped conditions, use of uh, routine torture as a means of controlling animal behavior, and we don't think it's possible for meat to be widely available and affordable at nearly the scale that it is today without the use of those techniques. The practical implications of a view that actually cares about animal welfare is most people won't be able to eat meat most of the time because those economies of scale are ultimately, ultimately propped up by that cruelty. Uh, and furthermore, we think that even though there may be some instances of harming animals that are justifiable, like medical research, uh, we apply the same standard that we do to other humans. Doing so, torturing animals when your life is not in immediate danger, just for your own pleasure, is not justifiable, even if doing so in defense of your life or in defense of others might be. That's something we can talk about. But first, we have to embrace the idea that we should care for all life equally. So I'm very proud to support this motion. Thank you so much, Emily, for that speech. 
And now to open up the case for opposition, I'd like to welcome Gabe. Thanks everyone. I'll just jump right into it. Josh and I believe that ethical consumption can be defined in three parts. Do you have choices? What's the cost benefit analysis? And are you culpable? Let's first talk about just the general parameters, parameters of this discussion, right? We think that this whole debate can come down to the killing, the production, and the consumption of the meat, and how that affects three stakeholders, the animal, the person, and the environment. So let's talk about choice. We think that the proposition argues that animals don't have a choice, but they miss the argument that oftentimes humans, especially in the developing world, also don't have a choice. Vegan diets are only accessible to those who can afford it or survive them. Thus, eating meat cannot be unethical for those who can't afford not to. The Animal, animal Consortium in 2012 reported that there are 17 billion animals in the world, and the vast majority of them are actually not factory farmed. It is estimated that between 1.3 billion and 2 billion people globally are employed because of livestock. And more importantly, development economists call this the livestock ladder, meaning the vast majority of the world depends on livestock to actually have social mobility. Even further, The Guardian reports that the 40 to 60% of all agricultural GDP is dependent upon livestock, and that meat itself can bring up 10 times more profits to low-income in individuals and developing communities than crops can. That is for this reason, the LA Times concludes that incomes are 40% higher for those who actually develop and grow livestock in the developing world over crops, which probably explains why 68% of households actually earn income from livestock. But this is particularly true for women. Almost two-thirds of the world's billion poor are livestock keepers are actually rural women. Livestock are an important asset for women because it's often easier for many women in the developing countries to acquire livestock than it is for land. Studies have concluded that it's entirely inequitable for those to access land as compared to livestock. Quick question on that? Yeah, Kelly. Okay, but all of the evidence that you're bringing up speaks directly to what Emily already discussed about when your life is in danger, that may be an acceptable practice, but we're talking about when people have the option because they aren't like subsistence hunting and things like that. Yeah, but I think our evidence proves the vast majority of the developing world actually don't have this choice. And then if anything, meat is the only way, and we'll point to later, for them to subsist and survive. And we think particularly veganism supports white privileged communities in which they have access to whole foods and other alternatives and disposable income where the vast majority, especially of, of low-income Black communities, don't have access to that in food deserts, which we'll get to now. For example, in developing countries like the United States or developed countries, 33% of people have to travel more than 10 miles to get access to fresh fruits and vegetables. Even further, 30% more than nine, nine non-white residents are facing these access problems. On average, studies have found that the vegan basket at your grocery store will cost 60% more and 65% more when you go to our restaurant. We think this is particularly harmful for developing communities. We think this is harmful for women. We think this is harmful, especially for black individuals and BIPOC communities. Meat is a way to subsist and we cannot categorize it as unethical for those who don't have the choice to eat it. But we think we're also gonna win on the environmental uh, argument. Their whole premise is that we could eventually subsist and survive on a market fully from agricultural non-meat um, products. What they found is that 60% of Sub-Saharan Africa couldn't transition to this. And more importantly, there were studies that if you completely transitioned to a vegan diet, you wouldn't be able to feed the entire world's poor because of the, the issues with land consumption. Furthermore, this scaling up problem that the proposition identifies is also true for vegan diets, right? A single avocado uses 60 gallons of water and almond uses one gallon. This is going to exacerbate water conflicts across the world if you try to declare that eating meat is unethical. But more importantly, it's key for nutrition. More than 26% of protein comes from animal products in East Africa alone, with more than 50% of folks in East Asia surviving on fish. The evidence is clear that the UN concludes that the only way to reduce malnourishment in these countries is not through cheap tubers, which have led to malnourishment, but rather through meat. So we think that the general benefit to society Society to individuals is overall beneficial when you have meat as an access or an ability to get social mobility. Lastly, on culpability, they say that animals don't have choices, but what choices do consumers have? They talk a little bit about the ethics of something like maybe like say Peter Singer and his
his favorite example, he talks about someone drowning in a pond and their ability to change or uh, you know pull that person out of the pond is what creates moral obligation. We think the problem with this proposition uh, argument is that eventually you're actually going to turn people away from reducing animal consumption because of the extremes of veganism. We think it's more likely that because of purity politics, people who would have otherwise said, hey, I'm going to have a meatless Monday will now turn away from actually decreasing their meat consumption. And overall, you're actually going to hurt more animals and have more suffering because you did not take the middle ground. You cannot come up here and declare axiomatically that meat is unethical because of the meta effects that's also going to have. We think we'll talk more about how this affects animals, but we think times are changing. There are introductions of laws that change factory farms. We have anti-ag gag laws that show us the scrutiny that needs to be put onto factory farms. In California, you have a specific amount of space that chickens, hogs, and cows now have to exist in. We've seen an increased amount of demand for these products where we see that there's momentum changing. And lastly, we see that the introduction of Impossible Burgers, of Beyond Meat Burgers, et cetera, is that there's trends in consumption that mean eating meat isn't unethical. The problem that the proposition has is the abuse and misuse of the production, the consumption, and the killing that's the problem. Thus, inherently speaking, meat isn't going to be unethical. Lastly, we see that veganism is actually hurting prices in those in developing communities. Because of folks engaging in more quinoa avocado consumption, we saw prices go up in developing communities and developing countries. Because of the support of these vegan movements, we saw that prices went up for those who got hurt most by it. So we think in terms of culpability, in terms of cost-benefit analysis and because of choice, we think it is wholly and inherently um, true that eating meat can be ethical, and thus, that's why you should vote for the Great. Other. Thank you so much, Gabe. We will now have a period of cross-examination where we will start with Emily questioning Gabe and then switch halfway through to give him the chance to return the favor. So, Gabe, can you tell me what proportion of your master's in religious studies you paid for in Heads of Cattle? Yes. So I paid a substantial federal loan on it. Um, none of it was in cattle. <laughs> mm, okay. So uh, for how much of your life have you relied on uh, pastoral agriculture to sustain your lifestyle? Yeah, I would actually say my 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 Iowa side of my family are actually uh, chicken, beef, and and soy farmers. So uh, we probably got vast majority of our chickens and beef for the winter from them. So I would say for about thirty years, and my cool. parents still have chickens in their freezer from my 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 farmer farmer friends. So yeah. Yeah. So from others or you sold those for money? Oh, no, no. My, my family sends out my family and I was sends out chickens and beef uh, to actually subsist on for the whole year. So my family probably only eats beef from Iowa that was grown for my family. Yeah. yeah OK, so you're engaged. Your family is engaged in subsistence agriculture then. Well, uh, extended family, but not me. I don't eat meat. So. <laughs> right. But my point is they don't sell the beef that they raise for money. They just eat it themselves? Oh, no, no. Yeah. To be fair, uh, the, the vast majority is, you're right, sold for money. And uh, the, the what's left over is given to my, my family in Colorado. Yep. Yes. So engaging in your farm, your family is essentially farming a cash crop, except the cash crop is animals. Uh, yes. Mostly soy, but they do do, like I said, cattle and, and chickens. Yeah. Right. My point is that your lifestyle, you can comfortably afford to eat a vegan lifestyle if you chose. And do you know how many people in America, the FDA says, have a chronic protein deficiency? I don't know, but I know the UN says 20 million people across the world have a protein Yeah, sure. Protein. But basically no one in America is the answer because protein deficiency has never been a problem in American life. Right, right. That's why we wanted to expand the debate to how this affects most folks. Uh, we think that's the majority of, of, the, of the world. Okay. I mean, that's fair enough. Okay. Uh, yeah, let's get on to some, I want to talk more about that sort of the ethical standard you talked about, which is sort mm -hmm. of needless suffering and pain. In any instance in which we cause a sentient being pain, does that make the action inherently unethical? That is not answered by my case. I actually was stipulating a principle and not telling you the evaluation mechanism you should use to apply it. You could use a consequentialist framework, you could use a deontological framework, but the idea is that the origin of the moral claim that an individual poses is their capacity to feel pleasure or pain. I could say, let's cause the least amount of pain to the greatest number of people, or I could say, let's never cause pain to any sentient being. Both of those are compatible with an ethics of care. Uh, the, it's, a, it's an axiom that we're discussing and not necessarily the whole moral framework because it's not relevant to the debate. 
Yeah, no, I think I think just Josh and I are trying to find a way to find, you know, what's the way to evaluate this standard so yeah. we can come to the conclusion. Uh, you mentioned Peter Singer. Um, Peter Singer says it's permissible, for example, to eat some shellfish because they can't perceive pain. So isn't that, you know, uh, maybe some evidence that there are some animals that you can eat ethically and humanely? Sure. How much? Uh, and you're a pescatarian, so you're you're a good example of that. Uh, and not all definitions of veganism agree. There are religious vegans who will eat certain kinds of animal products at certain kinds of year. I will eat honey because I think that that it's consistent with an ethics of care to not harm, and it doesn't harm bees. Ultimately, it would harm them approximately the same amount as if they were in the wild. So, um, yes, there are many different interpretations of veganism, but I think all of them that make a good faith effort to try to protect animal welfare as far as possible uh, are compatible with our case and compatible with the view that we could be doing a hell of a lot more than we are doing to protect the interests of animals. Last quick question. I want the animal trolley problem. If there was a person on a track and three cows on the other track, should we prioritize the three cows because they feel more pain and suffering than the individual human? No, you'd you'd need at least six cows. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Thanks, Emily. Thank you both. And now we will move on to hear from our second speakers, beginning with Kelly from the government side. Gabe's speech was really interesting because it was largely not responsive to most of what Emily laid out in the framework. Um, so I'd like to address that and then talk about some specific cherry picking that we hear from side opposition today that I think um, really kind of undermines their entire case as a whole. We're talking about harm reduction and we're talking about ethics in so far as people have a choice to opt for ethical behavior. We think that when you have no option but to engage in a specific behavior, there is no ethical calculus that can be applied to it because you are compelled to behave in a certain way and don't have the option to do anything otherwise. And I think that's pretty clear with what Emily talks about. When your life is in, in danger, it's not just a, it, you don't have to justify that you're, you're engaging in this behavior, right? But we're talking about our side here about when you actually are given a choice what do you do with that choice? Um, so with that, we have harm reduction and we're going to talk a little bit more about specifically what we heard from um, the opposition here and then talk about when you have this choice, how does veganism actually operate towards changing the, the norms and the production of these, these, these goods, since I guess we're reducing animals to being goods. So we hear from, from Gabe that humans in developing world don't have a choice which is precisely what Emily is talking about. But we're when we're given a choice and we actually can make, make the distinction between whether we're doing something for survival or doing it just because we choose to do so because we want to do so, we should choose to do the thing that creates the least amount of harm in our choice of behavior. Um, then we're talking about what we hear from from Gabe is the idea about all of the specific crops that have the issues tied to them, such as avocados, almonds, and quinoa. So these are like, Aside from actually including cherries in and of themselves, you very much cherry picked like the biggest items that are the like, uh, I don't know, like low hanging fruit, so to speak, in terms of <laughs> the, the types of food that most people don't eat a lot of all of the time because of the cost associated with them. A lot of people who engage in a vegan diet eat a lot of grains, not just quinoa, but yeah, some quinoa. Uh, they eat a lot of nuts and seeds, not just almonds, and they eat a lot of fresh produce. And we think that there's definitely a way to do so in a, in a consistently ethical way by choosing locally produced, pro, like grown produce, if you like think that's an ethical consideration that needs to be made. So we're talking about like whole foods vegans when we're listening to what Gabe has said. And I'm thinking about like vegans who actually like diversify where they buy their food from and grow some of it themselves. And I think there's a way for both of those people to be ethical. And I don't know, this case just is, is wild to me. Okay. So one of the key points that I think needs to be addressed specifically is that, I'm, that meat is a key for nutrition in specific areas where like tubers are insufficient for, you know, development and growth. And actually the evidence shows that chest feeding is one of the most major nutritional linchpins in these areas. And chest feeding is vegan because the animal involved, someone who can produce milk is consenting to the process. So we think that that's very much consistent with our case as well and answers the nutritional question. Then we hear specifically that because we are not allowing for the middle ground, the moderate viewpoint to come forth, which I think we actually are, we're turning more people away from veganism because we're coming at them with this like 
I don't know, pressure and how dare you finger wagging, shaming and things like that. And I don't think anything that Emily said points to shaming people for these choices. I think that Emily actually wants to avoid the shaming discussion by saying, you already know what the issues are, but let's talk about the framework under which you should be making better choices. And those choices involve the harm reduction of choosing a vegan lifestyle, not eating meat when you are afforded the option of doing so. Does anybody have any questions? Yeah. Can I jump in? Can you clarify on harm reduction? If, if we can prove that, well, first of all, how do you distinguish between harms between animals and humans? Uh, how do we weigh the harms as they affect different stakeholders? Okay. I think this is going to be a complicated question because we're talking about the people who have the option of choosing whether or not they can eat animals. And then the people who don't have the option and have to rely upon subsistence farming. And I think that we talk about not only the fact that animals are dying in both scenarios, but what Emily specifically said is that the scale at which animals are dying in both scenarios and the method by which they're dying is very distinct from each other. And those are the types of questions that we want to answer today. Subsistence hunting for actual like nutritional needs because you have no other options is not nearly as damaging to animals holistically like factory farming is. And that in and of itself, like that is the lone reason why we think that there is an ethical distinction between eating for pleasure, eating meat for pleasure and eating meat for survival reasons. The, the methods of actually getting your food in either scenario is drastically different. Let's talk about veganism as a boycott or not eating meat as a boycott. And we think this is where it makes the most sense for people who have the choice to actually engage in this practice because they are directly engaging with market forces because most of the meat consumed in the areas where people can choose to eat meat or not choose to eat meat, most of the meat is produced in factory farming. Emily already told you we don't need to explain what the problems are with factory farming. But veganism not only is an ethical choice in that it does not engage in the killing of animals, but it also bankrupts the industry, which makes money off of killing those animals and stops the cycle of further abuse, thus increasing the amount of harm reduction in the scenario where you have the option of being able to like not eat meat because you don't need to, you can get tofu instead, you can grow legumes. It's pretty easy to do those sorts of things and find crops that actually work in your backyard or buy from a co-op or go to Whole Foods, that's fine too. So for all of these reasons, we are pretty proud to propose today. Thank you so much, Kelly. And now for the last speech of the first half of this debate, we have Josh on the opposition side. I've got to admit, I, I feel a little bit left out here. Everyone else has given their vegan credentials. So I figure I'll take the beginning of my speech here to point out that I also have not eaten meat in quite some time. It has been, in fact, four hours since I've consumed an animal product. So um, as an obvious authority on this topic, I'd like to approach it in two broad strokes. One, a philosophical examination of what it means to be unethical. And two, what is the best practical way of altering people's behavior, specifically when it comes to choices surrounding consumption? In his first speech, Gabe established, I think, quite clearly that it is borderline hegemonic to imply that a huge portion of the world's population living near or below the poverty line are unethical for eating meat. Now, while this might seem convenient for Gabe and I, it requires government side to do one of two things. Either they need to maintain their philosophical purity and apply their line that not to be vegan is an unethical thing to do for this demographic of, demographic of people as well, or they need to admit that whether something is ethical or not falls along a spectrum that varies depending on individual circumstance. Now, while I think that this neatly traps them into the latter of the two options, I don't want to abuse the fact that the huge population Gabe discusses in his speech are quite obviously not being unethical in their consumption of meat to survive. So to give government side a chance in this debate, I want to tackle them head on in a discussion of the ethics when it comes to the more privileged populations that exist in the developed world. To establish a bright line for what qualifies as an action being unethical, I think that it would be reasonable to consider the following. The degree that your action affects the world around you versus the degree to which that action impacts yourself. So let's take a quick thought experiment here. It's possible for an individual to live in the United States with a basic income of $12,000 a year. In 2010, the census showed that a quarter of households made less than $25,000 a year. You can adjust that for inflation if you like, but the point is that 75% of the population has significantly more money than is necessary. Now, at the same time, roughly 10 million people a year die from cancer. So someone who is making, say, $75,000 a year 
has the ability to give away 50 grand to cancer research and still live functionally in the United States? Are they an unethical person every day that they fail to do so? This falls specifically under the idea of we're only talking about people who have a choice standard from Emily and Kelly. So let's take this to the issue at hand. Eating meat and animal byproducts is a huge part of many people's everyday lives and often culture beyond the practical realities of the populations that Gabe talked about. And let's be honest, the individual impact that they have on the meat industry is infinitesimally small. If these standards that we're going to be using for, if these are the standards that we're going to be using for establishing that something is unethical, are we accomplishing anything other than rendering the term meaningless? Uh, Emily, you have a question? Every time you choose to eat meat, you inflict harm on an animal. But if you choose not to give away your money to cancer research, you're simply not putting a positive good out into the world. I don't understand why those two cases are being treated as the same. Uh, that assumes that the animal would only be killed if my eating of it exists, which is not the case, right? We're, whether whether or not I eat any particular animal, I had hamburgers for lunch today. I guess I, I, I feel bad, but I'll admit it. Uh, you know, and me eating those hamburgers for lunch today did not you know, lead to the meat industry killing those cows. They would have been killed either way, regardless of my action. So I do think that there's a, a passive action similar to the example of not donating money to cancer research in this case. And that actually leads me nicely to the second half of the speech, because if individual action has no impact on this issue, then where Emily is going with that question, I believe, is that what if everybody made that same choice? Then it would have an impact on the meat industry. So if we need to galvanize entire populations to make any progress whatsoever, the question is, what does labeling something unethical do to accomplish that? And we think there's a huge problem. This is where the problem of purity politics that Gabe mentioned comes out on government side. Demonizing people for the choices that they make is much more likely to ostracize them than bring them into the fold and incentivize them to contribute to your cause. So Kelly tells us we're not shaming anybody. But telling somebody that they're unethical is by default shaming them. If you are a person who re regularly engages in immoral action, of course, that's shaming somebody. We certainly haven't denied that there's plenty of cases in which the raising and killing of animals is abusive or harmful to the environment. But there's also many sustainable and humane ways of doing the same. To say carte blanche that eating meat is unethical is to alienate huge groups of people who might be willing to advocate for legislation mandating shifts in the meat industries. Most research has identified the issues with beef specifically as the major culprit when it comes to environmental impacts. It is a much more reasonable stance to take to ask people to consider cutting beef out of their diets, for example, than to tell them that they're a horrible person if they continue to consume any animal byproduct whatsoever. Similarly, it's easier to get people on board with things like what Gabe mentioned, meatless Mondays, where they agree to go vegan one day a week rather than give it up completely. And the impact of this is significantly larger than preaching at everyone about how unethical they are that they're being and subsequently getting ignored by 95% of the population. Take PETA, for example. Their stance and antics have not done anything to further animal rights, but rather turned that cause into a joke and made it harder for legitimate animal rights activists to make any progress whatsoever. So conversely, there's huge issues with the vegan food industry. Telling someone that they're ethical because they're vegan makes it easier for them to ignore the issues that exist within the products that they consume. Take almond milk, for example, that has dangerously high levels of pesticide use and disproportionate water consumption, right? So while vegans congratulate themselves for being ethical as they listen to NPR on the drive to Whole Foods, so they can buy their fair trade avocados and yerba mate, they just might be harming the environment more than they think. And now it is Kelly and Josh's turn to engage in their cross-examination. Josh, why do you eat meat? Oh, man. Am I going to get in trouble if I just say because it's delicious? No. I mean, honestly, it's just it's it's a part of the diet. To, to give the real answer, it's it's a part of the diet. And, and I've thought about trying to be vegan. And it's it seems maybe I'm wrong, but it seems like a huge hassle, like a huge lifestyle change to take on for for to accomplish that. OK. Are you also familiar with supply and demand? Yeah. OK. Is it reasonable to assume that the demand for you to eat meat, your demand to eat meat, contributed to the reason why the cows were killed to make your burgers today. Right, right. In reference to um, what Emily asked in the point of information, I think so, but I also don't think that that's true unless you can show that it happens on an aggregate level. 
I think we are seeing it on an aggregate level or else how else do you explain the emergence of more popularized meatless slash plant-based diets? Right. But what that means is that your side can't just convince me as an individual. You have to be able to convince the larger population. And we don't think that you do that by calling something unethical and beating somebody over the head with the, with the, you know, this moral superiority. Okay. How are you drawing people to your side by beating people over the head with moral superiority about almond milk and quinoa? Well, okay. I know that it's not my turn to ask questions yet, but I, I mean, in order to answer that, I don't, you think that there have been movements towards you know, a vegan culture and towards uh, more humane ways of consuming meat happening without the need for uh, this, this label of unethical. Okay. But can you also agree that vegans do actually care about people and are deeply concerned about things like worker rights and water consumption and these types of crops? Yeah, I think that they probably do. So can vegans be ethical and care about more than one thing? They probably can, but I think that a lot of people are single issue voters or they don't take the time, you know, once they feel good that they've accomplished one thing, they're ready to move on. You know, they're not, they're not putting up their entire life, you know, to, to follow down the train of thinking that brings them closer and closer to like, you know, ethical purity that no action they take in their life has any negative impact whatsoever. Last quick question less beef, meatless Mondays. So you're like, okay, with partially shaming people, partially shaming people like, six days a week. Okay. So, so me, for example, like I said, it's, it's difficult. I I would imagine that it's difficult to, to go full vegan. And so that stops me from doing it. But if somebody were to say, Hey, could you do that once a week? And then potentially move that to twice a week, I would be uh, definitely open to just doing something like that. And I think that, you know, to move to, to my half of the questioning, I think that I'm probably in the a good representation of the majority of the population that does eat meat also likes animals. I have a cat that's running around. You might be able to hear it in the background, right? So what do you think your side is accomplishing for people like me to change my mind when I'm already like sympathetic to your cause, but practically don't see how to implement it? I think that your side is vastly overstating the amount of like victimhood people experience by having their behaviors categorized as unethical. I think that people can recognize that like there are plenty of things that are unethical and they're not being bullied for doing those sorts of things. Like, I don't know, buying a kid's fare to ride a public transit rather than paying the full adult fare is not exactly ethical, but nobody feels <laughs> like they're being bullied by like the municipal governments and things like that. So I don't, I don't think you understand shame for starters, which okay, is ironic. Well, we'll take, take the beginning of Emily's speech, which I thought was, was actually quite persuasive, not persuasive enough to win this debate, but, but second place persuasive. If all those things are true and people know them, why aren't they changing their minds? Why aren't they changing their actions? We know that this is because people have a severe like preference for voluntary cognitive dissonance, where people actually mentally distance themselves from the ways in which their food was produced to the just making it distinct from what's actually on their plates. And it's a willful re-entrenchment of this ignorance and it makes people comfortable with their choices. But when actually engaging with those choices and having those choices made very visible to them, a lot of people do start to have that cognitive dissonance breakdown and start to make choices that are better consistent for them. Now moving into the second half of this debate, we will have one more speech from each side and then a last period of cross-examination, after which we will culminate in a three-minute summary speech starting with the opposition side and concluding with the proposition. For the first of those speeches, I'd like to turn the mic back over to Emily. Well, I'd first of all like to thank Josh for providing an excellent example of my joke from my intro about how thin-skinned and whiny meat eaters are. Um, It's probably because of all of the estrogen and beef, um, but that's a joke I'm allowed to make because I inject estrogen into my body on purpose. So like, and also it's not true, like just so you know, uh, you're not going to suffer any effects from the estrogen and beef, just like you're not going to suffer any effects from estrogen and soy. But in, in seriousness, nothing Kelly or I have said implies that we care about purity more than we care about doing the right thing as much as possible and encouraging people to move in that direction. I explicitly acknowledged in my speech that ethical farming would be a good thing. I just said that it's not practical at scale, that we can't replace one for one modern society with our habit of eating meat every day uh, at every meal with ethically produced 
meat that's free range because there's not enough land. There's not enough resources to do that because the, the economics of factory farming depend on cruelty and depend on mass confinement of animals. Um, so we're explicitly not calling for purity politics and not calling for people to be shamed based on the fact that they're only doing meat, they're only not eating meat six days a week instead of seven, or they're only doing meatless Mondays. Some progress is better than none. And this same logic applies to meat consumption in the third world. We're not sending men in black helicopters to abduct people from McDonald's. We're positing a principle. And what's more, we think that it's pretty patronizing to insist that you're not allowed to make ethical arguments because A, people will just reject them out of hand. Like, yeah, Josh will do that because he's Josh, but not everyone will do that. Uh, and B, people people who don't live in Western, rich, first world liberal democracies are capable of understanding ethical arguments and considering them on their own terms. We think it's perfectly reasonable to say, hey, consider how much meat you eat. Consider the fact that animals may deserve consideration, ethical consideration, and whether or not you can minimize the amount of animal consumption. Uh, and we don't think that it's unfair or unethical or, or hegemonic or, or colonialist to make an ethical argument and allow other people to accept or reject it based on what they will. Um, finally, this argument that, um, well, I, that animal was going to get slaughtered whether or not I decided to eat meat today. Like this argument basically forecloses the possibility that you can do anything at an individual level about systemic problems. It can be the case that an action is bad and also that the system is larger than you and will continue on without you. Like this, this argument basically says there's nothing wrong with flying in an airplane. It doesn't contribute to global warming because that airplane would have flown with or without me. Obviously that's true in some very limited sense, but in a larger sense, the fact that you flew on an airplane or didn't creates demand for the airline industry, creates more flights that end up flying, creates more fuel that ends up being used. And your individual behavior does contribute to the overall system, even if the system is larger than you. Yeah, I'd like a question from Gabe. Yeah, just to kind of go back to this idea of harm reduction real quick and related uh, to sort of the airline metaphor. Is the reason why eating meat is unethical is because the pain that is perceived by the animal, either in the production or death of that animal, is that why it's unethical? No, it's unethical because it can't be justified simply to eat meat for pleasure, which is what we're identifying. Uh, we leave open the possibility that there are extenuating circumstances where eating meat could be justifiable, but that's not the question most people are faced with. They don't have to consider whether they're going to eat uh, eat meat from the goat that they raised themselves on marginal land or go hungry this week. They're faced with the question of whether they want to eat meat for pleasure or whether they want to eat beans and rice for pleasure or for sustenance. Uh, we think that ultimately most people in Western liberal democracies are faced with a choice that more resembles a question of whether you want to torture someone for fun or not torture someone for fun. It might be fun, but it's still bad to torture. Um, and we think that those individual choices can drive systemic change. And ultimately, we think that that principle that we've posited is very hard for it to escape from, which is why the opposition has spent so much time trying to come up with examples of when it might be justifiable to eat meat or how I'm very problematic and very hegemonic for stipulating that it's bad to eat meat and just maybe saying that once is enough to drive people away from eating meat and never actually engaging with the core substance of the claim that animals deserve ethical consideration by virtue of being sentient beings who can feel pleasure and pain and by virtue of the fact that they're horribly tortured for the entirety of their lives before being cruelly slaughtered and then fed to the mass public. So we think ultimately, and that was the preachiest part of my speech, I'll step off my soapbox now. Uh, we think ultimately that that our, that principle is something everyone should take into account. And whether that means you start doing meatless Mondays, whether it means you only start buying factory farm, uh, non-factory farmed free range eggs or, or bison that was raised on marginal land and fed on grass its entire life. We think those are net positives from the standpoint of reducing animal cruelty. We think everyone should consider taking those steps and doing something is better than doing nothing. But we would prefer that you very much consider how important that principle is and how much suffering billions of animals are killed every year is being inflicted in the name of just, I really like eating hamburgers. And ultimately, given the stereotype that vegans are overly sentimental, NPR, tote bag wielding, whatever it was Josh said, I find it to be ironic that the most unstated and the most 
quote unquote compelling case for eating meat is I just want it. It just tastes good. And I'm supposed to be the sentimental one. I'm supposed to be the one who's driven by emotions rather than reason. I'd like you to think about that. Thank you very much. Thank you. And now for the last substantive speech of the debate, we have Gabe on the opposition side. Well, I like to think everyone in terms of how this debate has developed. I want to cover two issues in this speech, first on choice and then on harm reduction. I want everyone to notice how this debate has narrowed, where the only time someone can make a choice about their ethical consumption is if they're in a Western liberal democracy near a co-op or if they have a backyard garden or a Whole Foods that's within a mile of them, right? We first of all think we reject this. There are people making choices all the time. Remember the empirics I told you about. More than a third of Americans don't live within 10 miles of places that can offer these alternatives. Uh, the studies conclude that over a whole year, it's more expensive to be vegan than it is to actually subsist on meat. More importantly, they say that we can't talk about those in developing in the developing world or low income economies because they don't have a choice. This is a choice. They choose to survive. The idea that this is a false choice isn't true because there are many millions of people who actually subsist on lower than amounts of protein than they need. So we think it is a valuable contribution to this debate to talk about all of those who are making decisions. We don't just think this is in low income communities and countries, but also in places like the United States. Remember the racial divide that I talked about, which is that this is a key source of protein. Despite the caricature that they would like to say that this debate is about what brings pleasure to people, meat is a vehicle for subsistence, not just for lower income individuals, but for those who exist in food deserts and communities where they need to get protein to their kids in the morning. What is faster? If you be able to get a, I know it might, it seems for some of us don't like eat meat, a sausage patty into your kids so you can have protein for the day, or trying to convince him to eat maybe a bag's worth of, of broccoli, which is the sufficient equivalent amount of protein or nutrition that they would need to get. This is a choice that millions of Americans are making every single day, as well as developing countries. So we think this choice is relevant. It's not about this narrow sort of purview, where it's all of us who have the discretionary spending that can make these choices. Let's talk about harm reduction. There is an assumption in this entire debate, right, is that the vast majority of animals are living in torture. I am, again, not a meat eater for many of the reasons of the videos I've seen, the images I've seen of the torture that can happen. But what's important to notice is that this ethics, this issue of ethics they have is not fixed in time. We have seen the trends and the changes in the law on scale. They see the problem with our argument is not scalable, but you can see in California and in the European Union, there are regulations for which animals have to exist in in order to meet certain standards to be sold. So we see that it's possible for these two principles to coexist at the same time. Yeah, Kelly? Would those animals even exist? Would they have even been born if they weren't being bred specifically to be consumed by humans? Aren't they being born specifically to live a life of pain ultimately and serve people? Yeah, this is a great question because I think it is fair to point out that the vast majority of that 17 billion animals that exist in the world today for meat consumption wouldn't have existed, right, if not to serve the protein needs of the world. That is true, right? And the point that they're trying to make is that is needless suffering where they didn't have to be brought into existence just to serve the purpose of being protein. That is fair. But the point is that their characterization that all of them are living in tortured experiences, I don't think is necessarily true, but they don't take into consideration the harm reduction for individuals and humans. Right, which is we have always with our ethical considerations have to weigh the harm reduction that it is for the human versus the animal. They say that it is a torturous experience versus Josh just enjoying his hamburger. That is a false dichotomy. That is not the choice that's being made in most instances. In the most amount of instances, like we said, the majority of animals aren't actually not factory farmed across the world. In developed countries, they might be, but we also see that again, regulations and rules are changing over time. So this sort of fixed immutable characteristic of meat consumption is indeed not mutable and will change over time. And we see this happening. And there's demand of consumers wanting cage-free, cruelty-free animals uh, and, 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 and products such as eggs, et cetera. To the defense of the other side, they say this is not scalable because that requires more cost. So eventually you're going to hit probably a limit or a plateau on that. That's where we see science coming in. Petri dish meat, right, has the same components of animals, but can still be consumed in a way that we think doesn't have the suffering that they're talking about. But more importantly, to get to Josh's point, they say that we shouldn't go out there and make ethical de declarations. Oh, they said we can't do that uh, because 
wait, sorry, the other sentences, us saying that you can't make ethical declarations is impractical and also avoids the whole point of philosophical debates. We are saying you can, but if you were concerned about meat reduction or harm reduction, the type and the means of which you're going about it is actually going to be more harmful. Science shows us that nudges works against cognitive dissonance, meaning if you take an issue, something like a vaccine mandate or anything else, and put it into a politically charged environment, you're less likely for, to have people to listen or to take incremental approaches to reduce their consumption. So what we're telling you is that the meta-narrative around this discussion could actually reduce the amount of suffering and pain that goes to animals. This seems counterintuitive, but you would actually save more animal life years by having meatless Mondays than trying to support a vegan campaign, an entire country, a school, a university, et cetera, because of its ineffectualness in terms of changing minds. So the reason why we're here today is that we think, one, this is a choice that's being made by billions of people every single year. We think it benefits them, not just in terms of uh, on racial dynamics, gender dynamics, lower income dynamics, but more importantly, it's key for subsistence over time. But if their standard is harm reduction, we think on the environment, on the animal and on the individual. We are especially winning on the individual human level. And the suffering they talk about in animals is a temporary problem, not a fixed problem. And problem is an understatement, right? There are examples of extreme pain and suffering that these animals go through. But if we can prove to you that the scalability, which is happening in the status quo, is increasing, if we can prove to you that technology is allowing us to mitigate these problems, we think if it's not a fixed characteristic of the process, the killing, or the consumption, that means you cannot declare something as holistically unethical. Which means, if that is not the case, that meat not only can be ethically consumed, but we think in the majority of instances it is. And that's a reason to support the opposition. Thank you. And now we will move into our final section of the debate where Kelly and Josh will engage in one last cross-examination before providing summary speeches, starting with Josh on opposition and finishing with Kelly. So in Emily's speech, her last speech, she identified that now, as opposed to the beginning of the debate, it is unethical to eat meat when it is simply for pleasure. Is that a question? Because that doesn't seem inconsistent whatsoever with it. Emily has been saying, and I've been saying the whole time. So if you have any utilitarian reason, if you have, you have any practical reason for eating meat, it's ethical. No, we're talking about basically whether or not your life depends on it being the reason. And all of the exceptions have been pointed out by your side are like life dependent situations, which apparently according to Gabe is a choice. Now people choosing whether or not they survive. Um, so that's a whole different conversation for another time. I mean, that seems a little bit black and white, you know, to say that individuals will be malnourished and it will affect the quality of their life on a spectrum is not to say that it's a life or death choice. I could choose to eat meat and be healthier than if I didn't. That's not life and death. So is that unethical? Okay. You're narrowing, you're narrowing survival to basically life or death in and of itself, but survival it does not just mean that you are alive or you are dead, but that you can actually like exist as a human being and function too. Like there's a, there's, I think living versus surviving is, is very like distinct in our, uh, I mean, they, they write songs so, about it. So it's it. your side though, that has to establish what is ethical and what is unethical. So at what point does my health take a risk? Does it, does it cease becoming unethical to eat meat? Not a doctor, even though I play one on TV, <laughs> but we're talking about, when people really legitimately don't have a choice in the behavior, then their decision cannot be put under an ethical lens. But we're talking about specifically the people like you, Josh, who just like the taste okay, of it. I mean, I did make that as a joke. There was more there. But if you all want to just pick on that part, that's fine. Go ahead, Kelly. I think it's your turn. Okay. So this discussion of nudges, um, if people operate best and comply with like change and adhering to new standards best with nudges, then how come like laws and religion work on people? Cause I don't think they like gently nudge people into compliance in either of those. Um, I actually think that religion and nudges is a really good example of how uh, institutions like the Catholic church have, you know, trended more liberal over time at a very slow rate uh, because of this kind of nudge theory. Uh, the Catholic church did not just wake up one day and decide X is okay, Y is okay. These things that have been doctrine, dogma forever, we're just going to abandon now. This really makes me wish Emily had one more speech. <laughs> My God. As a trans person, I'd like to object to the idea that the Catholic Church woke up and decided that trans people are cool. I'm okay with that. <laughs> I'm, I'm okay too, but if you want to give the guy with the master's in religion another speech too, that's fine. 
Okay. I have another question. Do you meat eaters eat plant-based products too? Do they have a side of quinoa? Do they sometimes drink? Uh, if you count carbs as plant product also, I suppose I eat bread. Mm -hmm. How, like if you're talking about the ethical consumption of, of foods and you're weighing meat versus plant products, don't people who eat meat also eat plant products and thus they are as unethical as you're saying that people who exclusively eat plant products. In the right, I think they are, are both exactly as unethical, but our stance is that neither one is unethical at all. But you spent like several speeches browbeating us for mm -hmm. almonds. Right, right. Didn't you? Saying that you cannot identify one particular type of food product over another as being uniquely unethical. Our side doesn't have to say anything is unethical. But Emily said, <laughs> Emily said specifically the reasons why meat in particular has the unethical basis when you choose to eat it for pleasure because of the suffering that is involved in it. Isn't that the case? Is there suffering when meat is consumed? I don't think that I contribute actively to suffering by eating meat, no. Is meat producing suffering when it's consumed? In the way the industry is now, yes. Which I'll talk about right now in my summary. All right, Josh, you can now provide the final summary for your side of the debate. Okay, so what does something being unethical mean? Um, there's so many examples that we gave on our side of people eating meat where we don't think that their actions qualify as unethical. Um, Gabe, gave, Gabe gave multiple different scenarios across the globe of individuals living in developing countries, also individuals living below the poverty line in developed countries, also potentially people living above the poverty line in developed countries that just don't have access to um, you know, the kind of vegan products that the opposition side, the government side would like them to eat. And how did government side address this? They shifted their case to specify that no longer is eating meat unethical, but simply to eat meat for pleasure is unethical. It's a relatively weak stance. If you have any sort of utility, any sort of reason for eating meat, then it's okay. It's only wrong if you do it for fun. And this I think is problematic to apply us the, the term unethical and apply it in this way. I would, I would challenge them to think of any other unethical action that is okay in any instance, unless you're just doing it for fun unless you just enjoy it. Like when you believe something is wrong, you should expect people to make real sacrifices to uphold the standards of morality that you believe in. And as the debate has gone on and we've pressed them on example after example, government side has sort of run away from all of these sacrifices and said, well, we're only talking about instances where people don't have a, where they don't have a choice, right? Where they don't have to give something up in order to, you know, agree with the side that we've we've presented today. And what we think is that in order to make real progress on this issue and reduce the suffering that you've identified throughout the debate, you need to understand how your declarations of immorality interact with the cognitive dissonance that Kelly identified in her speech. Like we've agreed in the glass cross-examination, I agreed the meat industry is currently unethical in most instances. The meat industry does contribute to suffering. We've also identified the vegan food industry is unethical in most instances, right? Government side has never proven that both of those have to be the case though, that moving forward, those two things have to remain to be true. The question that Gabe and I presented was, what is the best way to move each of these industries, the meat industry and the vegan food industry, what's the best way to move them in the right direction? And Gabe in his last speech and what we've talked about is the idea of nudges. By moving people gradually in the direction that you want them to move, you're able to circumvent the kind of cognitive dissonance that Kelly in her speech identified as the main roadblock to getting people to act in a way that would reduce suffering of animals and would reduce harm to the environment. That's the way of going about doing this. But to declare something you know, carte blanche, unethical, to tell people that they're being immoral, to tell them that their actions are horrible, to yell at me for having hamburgers. I'm just being honest and telling you what I ate for lunch. I could have lied. I could have hidden that. To tell me these things, all it does is reinforce the cognitive dissonance and ask and make people dig in, reinforce their position, and then you get no progress whatsoever. We think on our side, we've shown you not only that A, there is no principled lack of ethics for people who eat meat, but also be practically, we're the side that has, uh, that's able to shift the world towards less suffering and less environmental impact. Thank you. And now for the final thoughts on this topic, 
we have the proposition summary speech from Kelly. What we hear from the opposition is essentially this picturesque view of the person who eats meat because they get the choice to do so, where they are consuming animals that just had one bad day. That was the day that they were, you know, cold for food production. But other than that, it was fine. And it's totally cool that I made that decision and I'm going to eat my hamburger um, lactose intolerant. So I'm going to have an almond based cheese on the burger and that's fine too. And all food production is equally unethical, but we here on side proposition say that some is more <laughs> equally unethical than others. So specifically because of the scale of the harm involved, when we're talking about the kinds of meat eaten by the majority of people who have the choice to eat meat, we're talking about billions of animals, more billions than the, more billions of animals than there are billions of people involved. And we have an admission from the opposition that there is suffering involved in the way that it's actually produced currently. And since we're talking about what is actually the case on the ground, I think that is really important that they cannot deny the fact that at the end of the day, animals suffer for human consumption. And when people are given a choice then to engage in that suffering or not, they should choose not to. And that would be the ethical choice. Apparently we're shaming people. I'm fine with shaming people. I have no problems. I am not um, popular. But we also think that we have to look at what the actual market implications are on the overall scale of this industry when people make the ethical choice to not engage in it and engage in that boycott of uh, choosing not to eat meat, being a vegan, whatever, eating, you know, potato chips because they're mostly vegan all the time too. And that's, you know, something that you can find anywhere instead of eating meat. There are plenty of ways to be a vegan other than what we talked about here and the caricatures that were painted by the opposition today. And there are ways to do so that do not engage in a lot of the suffering that is uh, as a result of plant-based food production that we hear from side opposition today. We don't really hear an accurate picture of how there is ultimately a difference between meat production and plant-based food production. They were just painting everything with the same brush uh, if we're looking at it from the perspective of side opposition. And we fundamentally disagree with that. We think we've been consistent the entire time here on the proposition talking about when it actually comes down to being a choice, there is no way to do this ethically in a way that is at the scale for people who actually want to eat meat for no other reason than they want to eat meat. And that has been the case since Emily first spoke. And that is the case right now. We don't think that side opposition has given you an accurate picture of how being, <laughs> being a meat eater can be ethical when you have the option not to be. So for all of these reasons, once again, we are very happy to be on the proposition of this topic. And that's it. I'd like to thank all the speakers for their thoughts. This was such an engaging and fun debate. I know I had a great time listening. Hopefully you all did too. If you'd like to share your thoughts or keep up to date on episode releases and other news, you can follow Indubitably on Twitter or Facebook at IndubitablyPod. Thanks for listening.